Today is Tuesday, March 25th, 2014, and this is episode 60 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me as usual tonight is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. Sorry, related day. I took a pesky little vacation, and so I was you know, out of the country. Yeah, you had a rough time out in Bermuda, I heard. It's true. You know, uh, did something I never done before. Went and did a whale watching tour and actually saw some humpbacks in the wild, which was pretty epic. Sweet, sweet. So, um, so while you were doing that, I I talked to Bob very briefly, and and he had one thing to say, and that is, uh, for all you you know infosec IT people out there, make sure your people, your employees, don't back up their work computers to their. Uh, NAS drive that's connected to their home router because, you know, quite often those are open to the internet and indexed by Google. Oh my. So, uh, yeah, that's apparently led to some bad things. That's, that's no good at all. That's no, no good. No. In any event, we have a full slate of stories, so we'll, we'll jump right into those. The first thing we have tonight comes from RSA, and uh, this actually uh, you found. The title is Bad Decisions Made Faster, How Qualitative Security Risk Assessments Are Making Things Worse. And this one really resonated very well with me because uh, they kind of go through some of the <laughs> the naughtiness associated with uh, with, with the, the the unfortunately common and popular heat map style risk assessment maps where uh, you know we we multiply frequency times impact and and uh, you know color certain cells yellow red and green and and uh, it does a pretty good job of of uh, in, in my mind at least at a very high level calling out some of the problems with that and you know, they, they did one thing which I thought was really interesting and, and kind of called a foul on the NIST. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, you know, and they sort of hint at it, but they don't explicitly come out and say it, at least that I saw in the article, that, you know, I, I really think this is part of the dumbing down or trying to make security discussions and decisions executive-proof. And it's really far more complex than a simple equation like this lends itself to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when, when you read through here, th so this is something, uh, personally, I've been really interested in and studying for a while, and there's some really good books out there, uh, if, if anybody's interested. Um, for instance, if if you, when, when you rate things in, in this kind of a thing, right, if you have, you know, let's say a, uh, you know, a two or a three, you know how how do you how do you compare the relative importance of those things? You know, is is are two twos more important than one three? And it just becomes really really difficult to objectively figure out 
what's more important when you're approaching things from this way. And the other thing they point out, which I think is also really important, is that when you when you take this kind of approach, people figure out how to game the system. Yeah. Not to be saying you shouldn't be prioritizing your mediation efforts, but at the same time, I've never been a big fan of subjective criticality ratings because a bad guy could you leverage a two into a ten and a heartbeat if you're yeah, not careful. Absolutely. And and mind you, yes, you've got you know, especially when you're pressed for resources, you have limited time, you have limited staff, you gotta figure out where to start. You gotta get your low hanging fruit. And that's where I can understand, you know, most security tools of some variety give you at least some level of criticality or risk level or rating or something when, you know, whether it be a vulnerability scanner or assessment tool or whatever it may be, I get that. But I also think that sometimes can give you a false sense of security. If you say, I'm only gonna, you know, remediate my, my criticals and my highs and I'll get to my mediums and lows when I can, there's still risks. Yeah. And by the way, there's uh, from a vulnerability perspective, there's been some fantastic work done by I think his name is Mike Reutman uh, if I if I remember right, where they've done some analysis to figure out that um, you know, paying attention to the the high scoring CVSS uh, CVSS vulnerabilities is is uh is not all that effective because a lot of uh, you know, a lot of the lower priority vulnerabilities, which are, tend to be more of the privilege escalation, local types of attacks that don't get those high CVSS scores, are in fact the things that are commonly exploited. And what he found was that the availability, at least in the case of vulnerabilities, right, that the availability of exploit code was far more of a, of a determinant on what you should patch as opposed to the CVSS score. So, you know, there's yeah. there's uh there's some interesting research, and and I kind of think that this whole space points to the fact that this, you know, that the, the information security space is kind of immature, and we're still trying to figure out, you know, how, what what the heck we're doing here. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I would say is that in many ways, criticality is also dependent upon your particular environment and your particular risks and your particular data and concerns, right? So what a third party has determined to be critical, you really have to take some of your own subjective analysis against your own environment and understand your own risk profile to decide whether or not that really is critical or not. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now we're going to move on to a story by Tripwire called System Hardening, Defend Like an Attacker. And, you know, the, it, it's, a, it's a short read, but it's a good one. And I, I think they, they, they make the perennial information security foul of citing Sun Tzu's Art of War. Um, Who? I've, I've never heard of that. <laughs> I know it's not it's not like it's the the first page first page on every freaking security PowerPoint ever. <laughs> but um, but they do they do an interesting mapping of of uh, you know some of the key elements and and then actually tie that back to the SANS top twenty, which I thought was was uh, you know was pretty cool and and highlighted that uh, you know I think at least the. For me, the takeaway from this is that as defenders, 
we need to also think about things from the perspective of an attacker. Because if we don't, that's what leads us to, you know, what I call the compliance mindset, right? Where sure, where we, you know, security becomes security for security's sake, and it becomes about compliance, and we kind of lose sight of of why we're doing what we're doing. And and then and then we get forty million credit card numbers stolen, and we're left wondering what the heck happened. So, ready to move on? Yeah, I mean, the other thing I would say about Dripwire is, is you know, them as a company, you can do some actually pretty clever things with Dripwire too, and they don't really bring it up in here, but, you know, if you want to set some honey data and some, you know, small localized honeypots to your network to, to pick up uh, attackers tripping on things they shouldn't be, Tripwire is a beautiful tool for that. It's It's very handy for setting up... Uh, you know, data that should never be accessed normally and, and alerting on when it's touched. Absolutely. All right. So the next story we have comes from Secunia. And Secunia, for those who of you who don't know, has a tool called the Personal Software Inspector, PSI for short. And, uh, and they use that to gather a lot of uh, of telemetry about software installed on on computers and i i have a i have a problem with the report that i'm going to describe in a second but basically every year secunia releases a vulnerability review using the data they've collected from this this um application and and by the way the application i think is extremely useful because it, it it basically catalogs all the software you have installed and nags you when an, an update for anything becomes available and, and it, it keeps bothering you until you install the update. So I think that's good. Yeah, I, I think that's excellent. I would love to see an ecosystem where more third-party tools get built into Microsoft's uh, system updater. Uh, I know we don't trust Microsoft. Uh, I, I know we don't like Microsoft, but I think for the average mod pod out there, uh, more tools like this would dramatically help security issues. Oh, absolutely. Uh, definitely so. So so anyhow, the the relevant things in this report I saw were that there was a in 2013, so this was a, you know, the report for the previous year, there was a 45% increase in the number of vulnerabilities on on software over the the 5-year average and that was also 32% over the previous year. So, you know, that we're, we're kind of trending in the wrong direction from a vulnerability perspective. And, you know, why is that? You know, it's probably a theory for every person out there, but, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. There were a 16.3% of vulnerabilities were rated highly critical and 0.4% were rated extremely critical. So I'm not really sure how you differentiate between those but um you know that i suppose uh what's beyond that uber highly critical <laughs> I, I don't know i guess uh, super you critical just, you just look at it and you're owned i suppose wow that's um, much like the uh the windows microsoft uh office word 2010 oh yes preview o-day running around right now and and by the way i just want to say what in the hell is up with running activex inside an rtf document yeah seriously (laughs) 
And, you know, for those who don't know, just a very brief thing is if you're using Word 2010 as your email authoring tool inside of Outlook, the preview tool can um, be owned with right. a view-only email right now with a specially crafted RTF. Uh, bad, bad, bad. And there's no patch yet. There's a, there's a sort of an EMAT uh, hack that you can put in, but there's no official patch yet. Yeah, I was I was going to tell you if uh, if you aren't already using Emet at your company right now, mm-hmm. go install it now. Yeah, it, you know <laughs> this is uh, it's it's pretty darn important. Uh, if you look back at the uh, in the past history, most of the Office and Internet Explorer vulnerabilities were mitigated by Emet. So, um, you know, it's a good it's a good tool. It can break some things, so you got to kind of. You got to kind of watch that, but it's a free tool, and for the most part, it works pretty well. You can you can exclude certain applications, so you know it's worth, in my mind at least, it's worth some effort to uh, to get it to work in your environment, and it would it would help with this problem. But but in any event, uh, getting back on track, the the report also goes into some breakdown on the the source of attacks. So so of the vulnerabilities that were exploited. Seventy-three and a half percent were what they call remote network attacks. So basically, um, I, I think that is uh, the system being attacked by something out on the internet. And nineteen point nine percent were local network attacks. So you know, on the local subnet, and six point six percent were local system attacks, which I interpret to mean you know, Privesk. That that sort of thing, and and by the way, that really surprised me, and and kind of underlines to me that this probably is a very narrow window into the total world of 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 you know PC exploitation. Yeah, uh, and <clears throat> there was a there was another interesting stat later, and uh, that seventy eight point six percent of software had a patch available on the day. Of a vulnerability disclosure, which was up from seventy point one percent, and uh, there were only fourteen zero days that amongst the software they tracked last year. So, I a- did not see it in their stats here, but I would love to see the breakdown of corporate users in the study versus home users in the study. Well, so so that I mentioned when I when I first started talking about this that I had yeah. a problem with this with this study, and the problem is that there's there's kind of a bias, a natural unseen bias here because you've got people, I mean, the people who who are being reported in this study are running PSI. And and by virtue of, of that being alerted to their software being, you know, needing to be updated. And, and, and so I, I also think it, it's not free to businesses. Right. And, but it's free to personal for personal use, so I suspect that the majority of the population is is probably uh, personal computers and not not business. Sure, but again, they don't go into that kind of detail, so we don't really know. Anyhow, moving on, the next story we have is actually a, a presentation by a group called Sky High, and it's a cloud service thing. I, I don't know exactly what they do but i thought it was um it, w- it was kind of a neat 
reminder about the concept of looking for anomalies as indicators of compromise. or And in particular, the, this presentation is talking about how to, how to use data and, and an anomalies in data or telemetry data on your network to identify uh, your confidential data being exfiltrated. And so the title of this report is how to find security breaches before they sink your business. It's, um, it's not a, not a, a very long read, but uh, to kind of sum up, they're, they're talking about looking for anomalous things. So massive numbers of tweets that, that coming from a particular computer that might indicate exfiltration of data, or I'll add probably also, uh, you know, command and control traffic. Uh, looking for large file uploads or large numbers of smaller file uploads to file sharing sites. And, and I, you know, I would add to that block file sharing sites. If you're a business, it's bad news. Well, it, it yeah, unless you have a reason to do it. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, some businesses use BitTorrent and such to download Linux distros and, um, some use box for corporate reasons, but you should understand what those reasons are. Yes, and, and I'll, I'll go on the soapbox for just a second. If please do, if you have BitTorrent, if you use BitTorrent as part of your normal thing, and and by the way, I don't have any particular problem with BitTorrent. I understand there's extraordinarily valid reasons to use BitTorrent. All I'm saying is, if you allow BitTorrent in your in your organization to be used. At some point, you will get a very unpleasant letter because somebody will be downloading something inappropriate. And, and, you know, it doesn't take too many, uh, you know, I don't know who, Katy Perry <laughs> albums being downloaded <laughs> for you, for you to, uh, to, to get the hint that you, you're going to have to block it. So <laughs> where's your faith in humanity, Jerry? <sighs> it's all gone. <laughs> It's all gone, man. Uh, so, <laughs> so then, then uh, they they talk about uh, looking for large numbers of go to my PC connection attempts, and you know, again, this is probably another thing you should just not allow. Uh, although, I would say for everything like this that you decide that you're not going to allow, you you probably ought to be looking for things on your network that are trying to use it. So if you block a file sharing site or BitTorrent or, uh, you know, go to my PC or Facebook or something like that, and you start seeing lots of activity trying to get to it, you might want to, might want to look at that because something's probably going on. Uh, and you know, they didn't cover it in here, but I wanted to add a couple of my own. And that is looking for a large number of AV hits. So I've, I've, over the course of this podcast, I've been pretty big detractor of AV, but I'll tell you, um, you know, everybody's got it. Look at the logs. Yeah. yeah, you know, I it's I think a lot of people have this this thought that well, you know, it, there's kind of this uh, this natural affinity that if the AV system if it shows up on the AV logs, it was handled, and if you know if it got if the system got infected, you know, you don't see it in the logs. So what's the heck, what the heck use are the logs? And, and I think it's a, I think it's valuable as an indicator that something's going on or where the person who's using the computer is doing something risky. 
Absolutely. Or it could be anything like, hey, there's a virus out on the file share. There could be all sorts of stuff. Right. Right. Um, or you catch the dropper and not the payload or vice versa. Right. So, um, and then, uh, you know, fire, just general firewall drops and IPS alerts emanating, emanating out from your, your internal network is also, uh, um, important. I, I, I read a, uh, just to d- digress for a second, I read a s- somewhere, and I should have kept a, a link to it, but, um, they were talking about keeping track of the reputation of your I- IP space. Interesting. And so, uh, you know, there's lots of IP reputation companies out there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're all, we're always talking about figuring out, you know, what, what systems should we allow our systems to talk to? But, but the point of this one in particular was keeping tabs on the reputation of your internal IP addresses, because that, that could be an indicator if, if you, one of your IP addresses shows up on a, you know, on one of those lists as, as malicious or, or sending spam or something like that, you, you know, that might be a, your first, your first inkling that something is going on. Yeah. Two things I'll add here. Uh, if you start blocking a bunch of potential services that your users are trying to use, understand one of two things will occur. They will either come to you and ask for an alternative that is something that is sanctioned by IT. Yep. Or they will go around you and find a way to do it anyway. Yep. So understand that don't just start blocking things willy-nilly. Try to understand what the business use is, what why the users are doing this stuff. Don't be the no person. Be the yes but person and say, yes, we can do that. However, we're going to do it with this tool instead that we can control and provide securely. It's not always easy, especially not in today's world, but it's something I'd recommend. The other caveat I have, though I love the idea of watching your metrics and, and instrumenting and finding anomalies, but keep in mind, this is the same thing that we used to do with baseline training of IDS and IPS systems and every other system that does this. And it has a couple of interesting weaknesses. One of which is, what if you've already got some sort of activity in your environment when you start baselining, that's malicious. You're going to baseline right, that right into normal. So understand, you'll catch new stuff, but it doesn't mean that you'll necessarily get what's already in your environment. And it's sometimes tough to know what normal is, uh, but I think it's a valid technique as long as you've got folks you can have a brain to really analyze what they're looking at here. You still need that human component. That's a very good point. Very good points. All right, so um, so moving on, we have a we've got a story that I don't normally like to talk about, which is uh, an NSA leak from our our good friend Mister Eddie Snowden. Uh, but this one I thought was was really particularly relevant. You know, for the record, I've never seen Bob and Snowden in the same room at the same time, and you never will. Hmm. <laughs> so, hmm. yeah, I know. It's a coincidence. Nor have you seen R- Bob and the Stig in the same room at the same time. <laughs> it's, a, it's a coincidence wrapped inside a mystery, wrapped inside an enigma. Uh-huh. So, in any event, uh, the the story here uh, again, it's on the inner. Uh, sorry, it's called the site's called First Look, which is Glenn Greenwald's new company. 
uh, since he left the Guardian. Anyway, it's it's a new disclosure, or, or at least new to me, uh, where the NSA has come out or has been discovered as having targeted system and, system and network administrators as a as a means to get into uh, organizations, usually ISPs and, and companies that they had wanted to attack or, or you know infiltrate, I, sh- I should say. And uh, and now again, I am a big proponent that you know if your adversary is the NSA, you know you probably should just kind of pack it up because <laughs> you know they're going to spend no matter how big your security budget is, uh, their theirs is a whole lot bigger. Um, however, the thing that concerns me very greatly, and and I've been on this, I've been on this witch hunt for a couple of years now, but I think that this disclosure is kind of going to open the floodgates. That a very effective technique of getting into networks is going after the administrators. Yeah, and, absolutely. And that's what scares the heck out of me about this particular disclosure. I'm not going to give any value judgments about you know whether the NSA was right or wrong or Snowden was right or wrong for disclosing it. All I'm saying is, holy cow, you know, people are going to learn from this now. And the techniques, I think, are really very simple. You know, they're using OSINT to go out and figure out who is, you know, who is a defensive securities systems administrator, you know, look it up on LinkedIn or Facebook or, or, uh, you know, what have you, and, you know, start sending them phishing emails. And, and, uh, to me, this just says, I think there's a whole, a whole new potential. I hope I'm, I'm hope, I hope I'm wrong, right? But mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't. <laughs> we 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 we've seen uh, we've seen criminals kind of adopt some of these techniques in the past. So I I don't think this is necessarily going to be different. But you know, keep in mind that the administrators and and the security people themselves are going to be targets. I think you're 100 percent correct, and. You know, I think most admins don't think about that and don't, you know, kind of take for granted that, hey, I'm an admin and don't really think about the fact that they could be a target and act accordingly. Yeah. And, you know, everybody, a lot of them operate. <laughs> right. You know, with their admin account and don't even think about it. And, and I think they also have, they, they also tend to have a false sense of security that, that they would be able to spot something you know, a, a miss. And, you know, maybe they can 99% of the time, but, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night on your way to the bathroom and you're reading your your iPhone, you know, are are you really on the top of your game? Right. And and so, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a this is a big deal and I think it's going to become a lot bigger deal. We've talked in the past about the concept of of improving the hygiene on computers that that administrators use, uh, I I am a a very big proponent of of kind of isolate what what I would call isolating workloads on on workstations. I know that doesn't work for everybody because it's expensive and it's annoying and and everything like that. Uh, but you know, again, if you if you have a an important business that has a lot to lose. Now here here's a technique that people are going to start using I think. Absolutely. And just pro tip, 
if you're the average admin and you're out at the bar and some insanely hot girl suddenly starts throwing themselves at you, they want root is really what it comes down to. <laughs> they always do. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you like this. But they always do. Oh, boy. All right. So, uh, so the next story we've got is from our favorite company, Network World. And this is uh, four lessons CIOs can learn from the target breach. And I know we've, uh, we've, we've treaded on the target ground quite a lot, but I think this is, uh, some, some new thoughts here. Number one, it's vital to know which alarms you can safely ignore. We talked a lot about that last week with, uh, you know, with fire, with fire eye and. And of course, the counterpoint to that is, is if I don't know which alarms you can't ignore. Yes. Yes. Right? That's, that's, I think, the more important lesson there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and in my mind, if you've got alarms you're ignoring, you're not tuning your systems properly. Yeah, exactly. That's, you should never, uh, this first point just frustrates me. There shouldn't be alarms you ignore or you, it's wrong. That's the wrong way to look about this. It's not an alarm then. Yeah, it's. Preach it, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) I just, this is what builds complacency and this is how things get missed and this is how you have target. Yeah. Number two, lobby for a CISO to handle significant security and liability responsibilities. And keeping in mind that that this article is about CIOs, right? Right, what CIOs can learn from Target. So I think the point here is you know, maybe maybe you should hire somebody else to insulate you. So you know when when you get breached, somebody else will take the fall and not you. Yeah, yeah. this is great as long as that CISO also has significant budget and significant re, you know, responsibility to hire, fire, and implement policy and all these other things. Right, right. Yeah, what, what, is, the, uh, what is the quote? If you, have, uh, if you have responsibility with not authority, you're the scapegoat? Exactly. All right, number three. That's like becoming the VP of special projects. Yes. One step from the door. Oh, boy. Crap, that's my title. I was just going to say, like, two of our (laughs) listeners went, oh, crap. (laughs) All right. uh, Incident response, number three, incident response plans are key to a successful recovery. You know, I I, I don't know why, you know, I guess I don't have enough insight into specifically what happened in the aftermath of Target, but uh, they they seem to get picked on a lot about their incident response. And I'm not necessarily sure having worked on some enterprise wide uh, incidents, I, I actually thought they responded relatively quickly. So I'm, you know, I'm not apt to dig on them about that. And, uh, and then number four was the weakest point is something you haven't considered. And they kind of point out the, uh, you know, the, the HVAC company as, probably something that didn't really pop up on you know high on that heat map in the red the upper <laughs> upper upper right corner that, which is colored red you know the right the, the, the fazio mechanical probably didn't show up in the upper right quadrant so well that's what we were talking about earlier right and you know not to quote Donald's, donald rumsfeld but i'm gonna quote donald rumsfeld there are known unknowns and unknown unknowns 
I use that like once a week. That's a, such an awesome scene. <laughs> and man, he got lambasted for that, but it's so true. And this is, you know, the only thing, first of all, point number three, I completely agree with. Point number four, the problem with that is they're being clever without giving you anything, right? Oh, you're going to get caught by something you can't think of. Ha <laughs> ha. Right. Right. That's, that's not very good advice. I think advice is try to think outside the box. And, you know, perhaps look to an outside company to test things you never want to thought of. Yeah. And, and again, I think you, it's very difficult, but especially for some of these more complex and really critical systems to, to really think through all of the interconnections and, and what, you know, what would protect your database or your POS terminals from your HVAC company, you know, and, and really think that, think those things through because I, I, I think, that a lot of companies just kind of skim over that and they say, oh, well, you know, there's a firewall right there. Right. Well, what does the firewall allow through? And, you know, I, so so that I think that's the, the there is something there. It, it is uh, overly vague. And, you know, I, I think it's it's one of those universally always applicable, looks really wise and clever, but but utterly useless kind of uh, recommendations and that's why we're here to bring insight to add some usefulness that's right that's right all right the next exciting story we have comes from the bbc wow and the title is energy firm cyber defense is too weak insurers say yeah this one's interesting yeah i thought this was really cool um so so we have uh we, we've what we've got right here is is Lloyd's of London is reporting that there's been a huge increase, and I'm not sure if this is only in the UK or or everywhere. I know Lloyd's of London insures things everywhere, but uh, they, they report there's been a huge increase in demand to cover energy firm cyber policies. I guess you would say, uh, but but the interesting thing is that, uh, and probably not unexpectedly. These insurance companies require uh, companies who want to be covered to go through some kind of an audit or analysis. And and uh, <laughs> there's an awesome quote in here. I'll get to it in a second. But basically, um, you know, the quote, the headline comes from uh, this this uh, Layla Kudari, who is an underwriter for a, a Lloyd's of London affiliate. Which is named the Kiln Syndicate, and that's really interesting because you know syndi- syndicates in the U.S. at least usually have a, a negative connotation. So uh, yeah. I, su- I suppose there's a, a cultural thing there. But anyhow, um, she says that uh, th- that it is um, you know it's it, these energy companies are generally are not being approved because their controls are too weak, and and the quote she has. It's just fantastic. We would not want insurance to be a substitute for security. Well, at the end of the day, they're accepting the liability, right, financially. Yeah. yeah. And they've got to control their risk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a numbers game. And when you're an insurance yep. company, that's that's your business. And you, you've got to get really good at it. I, I just have to wonder how well they have have gotten at understanding you know the the actuarial risk that that they're taking on when they when they make one of these insurance policies. Well, that's a great question, and something I was considering as well is, 
is this a well enough, mature enough area of liability that it can be quantified to the level that they would be comfortable with taking on the risk? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, well, obviously it is in some cases because they, I mean, it's a market. There's a lot of insurance companies playing in the market. I guess the question is, you know, is it going to end up being like, uh, you know, insuring condos down in in uh, in Florida during the early 2000s mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, uh, just waiting to get wiped out? Well, you know, the question is as well is how are the policies written? Are they written in such a way that the, that the uh, insurance companies very rarely ever pay out? Well, that's, that's true. That, that is a very good point. And I know uh, from a discussion on the Target, for instance, who I believe had a $100 million uh, cyber policy, cyber insurance policy, uh, and, and it doesn't sound like that's going to pay for much of anything. Wow. It doesn't sound like it's going to, it's going to, I think, I think if, if memory serves, uh, the, the, the limitation of what that pays for is the kind of the investigation and response. It doesn't pay for any of the claims against them, any of the, the lawsuits or, or whatnot. So, um, you know, I, it's a good point. You, you really need, you really need to pay attention to what is uh, what's covered and what's not covered because you might not be getting what you think you're getting. Right. All right. So next, we have uh, we've got an interesting story here, and and it's not you know it's not a it's not a big breach story, but uh, it did result from a breach. It comes from Computer World. The title is "Court Approves First of Its Kind Data Breach Settlement." And it's a federal court in Florida approved a $3 million settlement for victims who had some PHI, or protected health information, stolen uh, from a insurer named uh, Avmed who had a couple of laptops stolen and those laptops had unencrypted data. I mean, who, who encrypts their laptops, right? Especially if you're an insurance company. That's, Wait, you can you can do that? You can just, your just ridiculous. I, wow, that's cutting edge technology right there. I know it's crazy. So apparently, this happened back in two thousand nine. You know, the technology didn't exist back then. That's what that was the Stone Ages. And uh, in, in any event, normally in these kinds of things, uh, these kinds of situations, the defendants have to prove some kind of harm in order to rec- recoup. Uh, you know, losses in, in the court. And what was uh, innovative and, and new about this is that the, uh, the the plaintiffs didn't actually have any demonstrable harm, right? It was only that their data had been stolen and that, you know, basically they, they were, quote, in breach of contract and they didn't, you know, take due care and blah, blah, blah. Um, and and you know they they were paid. Now it wasn't a big windfall, three million dollars. The I think they the the uh, people got between ten and thirty dollars a piece. But you know, so obviously it was quite a few quite a few people involved. But you know, I, I think the the point here is that, and we're going to talk. Uh, we got another story <laughs> coming up. Right, this is this is becoming much more. Uh, litigious, right? Where we, you know, we're starting to see more downside to not having good security controls in place, and and you know, you might be able to say, well, you know, we we lost the hard drive, 
but we don't really know for sure. We're per- we're pretty sure nobody took the data, but but here's the case where it didn't matter. Right. Oh, and if you want to hear some credit monitoring. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's interesting, and I think it's inevitable that it's going to continue down this path. I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing. Well, it it is the stick, right? It, this is the stick yeah. that is going to, to drive companies. Now, the other thing, we don't have any stories to talk about this, but the FTC has become very active in, in the U.S., the Federal Trade Commission, has become very activist, and it's it's a it's a hugely controversial thing here because the FTC doesn't have direct authority to enforce any kinds of of laws, but they have been running around fining companies for in the wake of data breaches, and yep. and so there's a I know there's a number of of um, uh, lawsuits back and forth about the FTC's authority to do that. And at the same time, I, I read an article that the FTC is pushing uh, the U.S. Congress pretty hard to to up uh, the ante and, and increase penalties, or really, I guess, probably just establish penalties, period, uh, for companies who, who experience data breaches. So, you know, th- this is a big lesson learned. You know, if, if, uh, if we don't get on the stick... We are, you know, our companies are going to be at at um, you know a significant risk from from these kinds of of uh, sanctions. So, you know, you, you know what I find interesting is small and medium businesses are probably most at risk from this kind of thing. If the downside to handling anything at all that is sensitive is so large, I could see it putting a lot of companies, small companies, out of business. Absolutely, um, no no question about that. No, no doubt about it. So the next story we've got is a, a late-breaking one that, that I saw not long before we started the podcast. And this comes from the Chicago Business or chicagobusiness.com. And the title is Chicago's Trust Wave Sued Over the Target Data Breach. And a, a couple of banks have filed a lawsuit against Trust Wave Holdings, who was Target's QSA. Uh, basically, PCI auditor, and uh, they are—they're essentially claiming that Trustwave failed to identify deficiencies in Target's environment, which led to the breach. And and uh, and so this article actually has the the full text of the complaint filed, and and these two banks are filing for class status against uh, gets Trustwave and and Target as as kind of I guess joint defendants but this is something that I didn't think we would see and I I, I know on previous podcast I, I had mused about whether or not we would see it and, and here we are yeah it's fascinating I know from my own experiences any one of these sorts of contracts are usually written with a heavy heavy indemnification clause for a provider like Trustwave you know I'm sure the contract said hey we're not liable for anything. Yep. So now we're going to test that in court. Uh, if it goes to court, it right. may settle out. Uh, may settle out of court. This is kind of scary, right? Because as a security provider, you are doing, hopefully in theory, your best effort to help a, a company and individual, but you're not responsible 
if they don't follow your advice or or if you know they don't completely disclose something or they change something or keep in mind most audits are a point in time of what was going on at the time that that was was happening so it's going to be really 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 tough to pin this back on Trustwave uh, and 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 if they do to carry that thought further if they do that's that could potentially have some really sweeping impacts on you know especially the consulting business but you know even potentially the product business too if if uh yeah. if there's this expectation that security companies are you know have some some liability when things go wrong this is uh this is going to be one to watch uh for for sure well, it's one thing too that a lot of companies for a long time would say, hold the vendors accountable for their security flaws and security breaches. I have never found that viable as a plan. And I could go on and on and on as to why. But the end of the day, you could have a, a very secure, very safe operating system if you only allowed it to run on one set of hardware and paid a million dollars a copy for it. Yep. Right? There, There is a a cost-benefit trade-off here. And to start holding security firms liable for this could have a really interesting impact on on the industry. Uh, obviously, I'm on the security provider side of it, so I'm not very fond of this plan. But, you know, does this mean that security guys now have to start carrying the equivalent of security malpractice insurance? Right. Right, absolutely. You know, it's just going to drive up costs, and it's going to, you know, at the end of the day... Who wants to be liable if if you're not in there day in, day out, running and owning that? Even an outsourcer, right? They mentioned here that, <clears throat> excuse me, that Trustwave was doing 24-7 monitoring and round-the-clock monitoring service Target. They can only see what Target lets them see. They can only do what they've been contracted to do. Right. They don't own the entire infrastructure and the entire network. Uh so part of this is interesting too, because there is this sort of conversation around when you do hire a managed service provider, how much liability do you actually shift to them? Right. Generally, uh, yeah. not much. Right. And I would argue, if you're smart, none. Uh, they're there as grunts, but they're not there to to really care like you're supposed to care. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm sure Trustwave thinks that they were acting well within the bounds of of the agreement they had. From mm-hmm. a, from a, the managed service side, and you know th- th- that doesn't that doesn't even speak to whether or not there was actually something being reported to to Trustwave, you know, the, right. to their sock because you know that's th- there might not have been a signature for what whatever uh, on whatever monitoring equipment Trustwave was monitoring. You know, this is this is an interesting thing, and you know if it if it doesn't get settled out of court, the the, the the proceedings are going to be immensely interesting to watch. Yeah, you know, this does remind me too that, like, when an you know, like an aviation accident occurs, people within days start filing lawsuits against everybody who's ever touched anything on the equipment. You know, and every manufacturer, the you know, from the tire manufacturer to the avionics manufacturer to the, the you know, so this is somewhat of a common tactic in other areas of law, uh, just suing everybody involved. Uh, Right, and then you know, see who see where it sticks. So this could be just a silly sort of legal tactic, but it's an interesting and dangerous precedent. Yeah, but we'll see. We'll yep. see what what comes of it. All right. Well, I think that is uh, that is the show for today. 
And, uh, you know, I appreciate everyone listening again. And as usual, if you have any feedback, send us a email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can find the show notes at www.defensivesecurity.org. Um, fortunately, next week we're we're actually going to have some uh, you know some big news to present to you about the podcast. So that that should be really exciting. Hopefully, everybody tunes in and and uh, you know enjoys what what uh, we have to announce there. And uh, on Twitter, you can follow the podcast at Defensive Sec. You can follow. Mr. Callet at Lurg. You can follow me at Malicious Link. And with that, we will talk again next week with our uh, with our big news. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening. Take care.